Section 17 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 German Speculations on Progress. 1. The philosophical views current in Germany during the period in which the psychology of Locke was in fashion in France, and before the genius of Kant opened a new path, were based on the system of Leibniz. We might therefore expect to find a theory of progress developed there, parallel to the development in France, though resting on different principles. For Leibniz, as we saw, provided in his cosmic optimism a basis for the doctrine of human progress, and he had himself incidentally pointed to it. This development, however, was delayed. It was only towards the close of the period, which is commonly known as the Age of Illumination, that progress came to the front, and it is interesting to observe the reason. Wolff was the leading successor and interpreter of Leibniz. He constrained that thinker's ideas into a compact logical system which swayed Germany till Kant swept it away. In such cases it usually happens that some striking doctrines and tendencies of the master are accentuated and enforced, while others are suffered to drop out of sight. So it was here. In the Wolfian system, Leibniz's conception of development was suffered to drop out of sight and the dynamic element which animated his speculation disappeared. In particular, he had laid down that the sum of motive forces in the physical world is constant. His disciples proceeded to the inference that the sum of morality in the ethical world is constant. This dogma obviously eliminates the possibility of ethical improvement for collective humanity. And so we find Mendelssohn, who was the popular exponent of Wolff's philosophy, declaring that, quote, progress is only for the individual, but that the whole of humanity here below in the course of time shall always progress and perfect itself seems to me not to have been the purpose of providence. The publication of the Nouveau Essay in 1765 induced some thinkers to turn from the dry bones of Wolff to the spirit of Leibniz himself, and at the same time French thought was penetrating. In consequence of these influences, the final phase of the German illumination is marked by the appearance of two or three works in which progress is a predominating idea. We see this reaction against Wolff and his static school in a little work published by Herder in 1774, A Philosophy of History for the Cultivation of Mankind. There is continuous development, he declares, and one people builds upon the work of another. We must judge past ages not by the present, but relatively to their own particular conditions. What exists now was never possible before, for everything that man accomplishes is conditioned by time, climate, and circumstances. Six years later, Lessing's pamphlet on the education of the human race appeared, couched in the form of aphoristic statements, and to a modern reader, one may venture to say, singularly wanting in argumentative force. The thesis is that the drama of history is to be explained as the education of man by a progressive series of religions, a series not yet complete, for the future will produce another revelation to lift him to a higher plane than that to which Christ has drawn him up. This interpretation of history proclaimed progress, but assumed an ideal and applied a measure very different from those of the French philosophers. The goal is not social happiness, but a full comprehension of God. Philosophy of religion is made the key to the philosophy of history. The work does not amount to more than a suggestion for a new synthesis, but it was opportune and arresting. Herder, meanwhile, had been thinking, and in 1784 he gave the German world his survey of man's career, ideas of the philosophy of the history of humanity. 
In this famous work, in which we can mark the influence of French thinkers, especially Montesquieu, as well as of Leibniz, he attempted, though on very different lines, the same task which Turgot and Condorcet planned, a universal history of civilization. The deity designed the world, but never interferes in its process, either in the physical cosmos or in human history. Human history itself, civilization, is a purely natural phenomenon. Events are strictly enchained, continuity is unbroken. What happened at any given time could have happened only then, and nothing else could have happened. Herder's rigid determinism not only excludes Voltaire's chance, but also suppresses the free play of man's intelligent will. Man cannot guide his own destinies. His actions and fortunes are determined by the nature of things, his physical organization and physical environment. The fact that God exists in inactive ease hardly affects the fatalistic complexion of this philosophy, but it is perhaps a mitigation that the world was made for man, humanity is its final cause. The variety of the phases of civilization that have appeared on earth is due to the fact that the possible manifestations of human nature are very numerous and that they must all be realized. The lower forms are those in which the best, which means the most human, faculties of our nature are undeveloped. The highest has not yet been realized. Quote, the flower of humanity, captive still in its germ, will blossom out one day into the true form of man like unto God, in a state of which no terrestrial man can imagine the greatness and the majesty. Close quote. Herder is not a systematic thinker. Indeed, his work abounds in contradictions, and he has not made it clear how far this full epiphany results from the experiences of mankind in preceding phases. He believes that life is an education for humanity, he has taken the phrase of Lessing, that good progressively develops, that reason and justice become more powerful. This is a doctrine of progress, but he distinctly opposes the hypothesis of a final and unique state of perfection as the goal of history, which would imply that earlier generations exist for the sake of the later and suffer in order to ensure the felicity of remote posterity, a theory which offends his sense of justice and fitness. On the contrary, man can realize happiness equally in every stage of civilization. All forms of society are equally legitimate, the imperfect as well as the perfect. All are ends in themselves, not mere stages on the way to something better. And a people which is happy in one of these inferior states has a perfect right to remain in it. Thus, the progress which Herder sees is, to use his own geometrical illustration, a sequence of unequal and broken curves, corresponding to different maxima and minima. Each curve has its own equation, the history of each people is subject to the laws of its own environment. But there is no general law controlling the whole career of humanity. Herder brought down his historical survey only as far as the 16th century. It has been suggested that if he had come down further, he might have comprehended the possibility of a deliberate transformation of societies by the intelligent action of the human will, an historical force to which he does not do justice, apparently because he fancied it incompatible with strict causal sequence. The value of his work does not lie in the philosophical principles which he applied, nor was it a useful contribution to history. Of him it has been said, as of Bossuet, that facts bent like grass under his feet. But it was a notable attempt to do for human phenomena what Leibniz in his theodicy sought to do for the cosmos, and it pointed the way to the rationalistic philosophies of history which were to be a feature of the speculations of the following century. 2. The short essay of Kant, which he clumsily called The Idea of a Universal History on a Cosmopolitical Plan, approaches the problems raised by the history of civilization from a new point of view. 
he starts with the principle of invariable law. On any theory of free will, he says, human actions are as completely under the control of universal laws of nature as any other physical phenomena. This is illustrated by statistics. Registers of births, deaths, and marriages show that these events occur with as much conformity to laws of nature as the oscillations of the weather. It is the same with the great sequence of historical events. Taken alone and individually, they seem incoherent and lawless. But viewed in their connection, as due to the action not of individuals but of the human species, they do not fail to reveal a regular stream of tendency. Pursuing their own often contradictory purposes, individual nations and individual men are unconsciously promoting a process to which, if they perceived it, they would pay little regard. Individual men do not obey a law. They do not obey the laws of instinct like animals, nor do they obey, as rational citizens of the world would do, the laws of a preconcerted plan. If we look at the stage of history, we see scattered and occasional indications of wisdom, but the general sum of men's actions is, quote, a web of folly, childish vanity, and often even of the idlest wickedness and spirit of destruction, close quote. The problem for the philosopher is to discover a meaning in this senseless current of human actions, so that the history of creatures who pursue no plan of their own may yet admit of a systematic form. The clue to this form is supplied by the predispositions of human nature. I have stated this problem almost in Kant's words, and as he might have stated it if he had not introduced the conception of final causes. His use of the postulate of final causes without justifying it is a defect in his essay. He identifies what he well calls a stream of tendency with a natural purpose. He makes no attempt to show that the succession of events is such that it cannot be explained without the postulate of a purpose. His solution of the problem is governed by this conception of finality and by the unwarranted assumption that nature does nothing in vain. He lays down that all the tendencies to which any creature is predisposed by its nature must in the end be developed perfectly and agreeably to their final purpose. Those predispositions in man which serve the use of his reason are therefore destined to be fully developed. This destiny, however, cannot be realized in the individual. It can only be realized in the species. For reason works tentatively by progress and regress. Each man would require an inordinate length of time to make a perfect use of his natural tendencies. Therefore, as life is short, an incalculable series of generations is needed. The means which nature employs to develop these tendencies is the antagonism which in man's social state exists between his gregarious and his anti-gregarious tendencies. His anti-gregarious nature expresses itself in the desire to force all things to comply to his own humor. Hence, ambition, love of honor, avarice. These were necessary to raise mankind from the savage to the civilized state. But for these antisocial propensities, men would be gentle as sheep, and, quote, an Arcadian life would arise of perfect harmony and mutual love, such as must suffocate and stifle all talents in their very germs. Close quote. Nature, knowing better than man what is good for the species, ordains discord. She is to be thanked for competition and enmity, and for the thirst of power and wealth. For without these, the final purpose of realizing man's rational nature would remain unfulfilled. This is Kant's answer to Rousseau. The full realization of man's rational nature is possible only in a universal civil society founded on political justice. The establishment of such a society is the highest problem for the human species. Kant contemplates, as the political goal, 
a confederation of states in which the utmost possible freedom shall be united with the most rigorous determination of the boundaries of freedom. Is it reasonable to suppose that a universal or cosmopolitical society of this kind will come into being, and if so, how will it be brought about? Political changes in the relations of states are generally produced by war. Wars are tentative endeavors to bring about new relations and to form new political bodies. Are combinations and recombinations to continue until by pure chance some rational self-supporting system emerges, or is it possible that no such condition of society may ever arrive, and that ultimately all progress may be overwhelmed by a hell of evils? Or, finally, is nature pursuing her regular course of raising the species by its own spontaneous efforts and developing, in the apparently wild succession of events, man's originally implanted tendencies? Kant accepts the last alternative on the ground that it is not reasonable to assume a final purpose in particular natural processes and at the same time to assume that there is no final purpose in the whole. Thus his theory of progress depends on the hypothesis of final causes. It follows that to trace the history of mankind is equivalent to unraveling a hidden plan of nature for accomplishing a perfect civil constitution for a universal society since a universal society is the sole state in which the tendencies of human nature can be fully developed. We cannot determine the orbit of the development, because the whole period is so vast and only a small fraction is known to us, but this is enough to show that there is a definite course. Kant thinks that such a cosmopolitical history, as he calls it, is possible, and that if it were written it would give us a clue opening up, quote, a consolatory prospect into futurity, in which, at a remote distance, we shall discover the human species seated upon an eminence won by infinite toil, where all the germs are unfolded which nature has implanted, and its own destination upon this earth accomplished. Three. But to see the full bearing of Kant's discussion, we must understand its connection with his ethics, for his ethical theory is the foundation and the motive of his speculation on progress. The progress on which he lays stress is moral amelioration, he refers little to scientific or material progress. For him, morality was an absolute obligation founded in the nature of reason. Such an obligation presupposes an end to be attained, and this end is a reign of reason under which all men, obeying the moral law, mutually treat each other as ends in themselves. Such an ideal state must be regarded as possible because it is a necessary postulate of reason. From this point of view, it may be seen that Kant's speculation on universal history is really a discussion whether the ideal state, which is required as a subjective postulate in the interest of ethics, is likely to be realized objectively. Now, Kant does not assert that because our moral reason must assume the possibility of this hypothetical goal, civilization is therefore moving towards it. That would be a fallacy into which he was incapable of falling. Civilization is a phenomenon, and anything we know about it can only be inferred from experience. His argument is that there are actual indications of progress in this desirable direction. He pointed to the contemporary growth of civil liberty and religious liberty, and these are conditions of moral improvement. So far, his argument coincides in principle with that of French theorists of progress. But Kant goes on to apply to these data the debatable conception of final causes, and to infer a purpose in the development of humanity. Only this inference is put forward as a hypothesis, not as a dogma. It is probable that what hindered Kant from broaching his theory of progress with as much confidence as Condorcet was his perception that nothing could be decisively affirmed about the course of civilization until the laws of its movement had been discovered. He saw that this was a matter for scientific investigation. 
He says expressly that the laws are not yet known, and suggests that some future genius may do for social phenomena what Kepler and Newton did for the heavenly bodies. As we shall see, this is precisely what some of the leading French thinkers of the next generation will attempt to do. But cautiously though he framed the hypothesis, Kant evidently considered progress probable. He recognized that the most difficult obstacle to the moral advance of man lies in war and the burdens which the possibility of war imposes and he spent much thought on the means by which war might be abolished. He published a philosophical essay on perpetual peace, in which he formulated the articles of an international treaty to secure the disappearance of war. He considered that, while a universal republic would be the positive ideal, we shall probably have to be contented with what he calls a negative substitute, consisting in a federation of peoples bound by a peace alliance, guaranteeing the independence of each member. But to assure the permanence of this system, it is essential that each state should have a democratic constitution. For such a constitution is based on individual liberty and civil equality. All these changes should be brought about by legal reforms. Revolutions, he was writing in 1795, cannot be justified. We see the influence of Rousseau's social contract and that of the Abbé de Saint-Pierre, with whose works Kant was acquainted. There can be little doubt that it was the influence of French thought, so powerful in Germany at this period, that turned Kant's mind towards these speculations which belong to the latest period of his life and form a sort of appendix to his philosophical system. The theory of progress, the idea of universal reform, the doctrine of political equality, Kant examined all these conceptions and appropriated them to the service of his own highly metaphysical theory of ethics. In this new association their spirit was changed. In France, as we saw, the theory of progress was generally associated with ethical views which could find a metaphysical basis in the sensationalism of Locke. A moral system which might be built on sensation as the primary mental fact was worked out by Helvetius. But the principle that the supreme law of conduct is to obey nature had come down as a practical philosophy from Rabelais and Montaigne through Moliere to the 18th century. It was reinforced by the theory of the natural goodness of man. Jansenism had struggled against it and was defeated. After theology, it was the turn of metaphysics. Kant's moral imperative marked the next stage in the conflict of the two opposite tendencies which seek natural and ultranatural sanctions for morality. Hence, the idea of progress had a different significance for Kant and for its French exponents, though his particular view of the future, possibly in store for the human species, coincided in some essential points with theirs but his theory of life gives a different atmosphere to the idea. In France, the atmosphere is emphatically eudaimonic. Happiness is the goal. Kant is an uncompromising opponent of eudaimonism. If we take enjoyment or happiness as the measure, it is easy, he says, quote, to evaluate life. Its value is less than nothing. For who would begin one's life again in the same conditions, or even in new natural conditions, if one could choose them oneself, but of which enjoyment would be the sole end? Close quote. There was, in fact, a strongly marked vein of pessimism in Kant. One of the ablest men of the younger generation who were brought up on his system founded the philosophical pessimism, very different in range and depth from the sentimental pessimism of Rousseau, which was to play a remarkable part in German thought in the 19th century. Schopenhauer's unpleasant conclusion that of all conceivable worlds this is the worst is one of the speculations for which Kant may be held ultimately responsible. 4. Kant's considerations on historical development are an appendix to his philosophy, 
they are not a necessary part, wrought into the woof of his system. It was otherwise with his successors, the idealists, for whom his system was the point of departure, though they rejected its essential feature, the limitation of human thought. With Fichte and Hegel, progressive development was directly deduced from their principles. If their particular interpretations of history have no permanent value, it is significant that, in their ambitious attempts to explain the universe a priori, history was conceived as progressive, and their philosophies did much to reinforce a conception which, on very different principles, was making its way in the world. But the progress which their systems involved was not bound up with the interest of human happiness, but stood out as a fact which, whether agreeable or not, is a consequence of the nature of thought. The process of the universe, as it appeared to Fichte, tends to a full realization of freedom. That is its end and goal, but a goal that always recedes. It can never be reached, for its full attainment would mean the complete suppression of nature. The process of the world, therefore, consists in an indefinite approximation to an unattainable ideal. Freedom is being perpetually realized more and more, and the world, as it ascends in this direction, becomes more and more a realm of reason. What Fichte means by freedom may be best explained by its opposition to instinct. A man acting instinctively may be acting quite reasonably, in a way which anyone fully conscious of all the implications and consequences of the action would judge to be reasonable. But in order that his actions should be free, he must himself be fully conscious of all those implications and consequences. It follows that the end of mankind upon earth is to reach a state in which all the relations of life shall be ordered according to reason, not instinctively, but with full consciousness and deliberate purpose. This end should govern the ethical rules of conduct, and it determines the necessary stages of history. It gives us at once two main periods, the earliest and the latest, the earliest in which men act reasonably by instinct, and the latest in which they are conscious of reason and try to realize it fully. But before reaching this final stage, they must pass through an epoch in which reason is conscious of itself but not regnant. And to reach this they must have emancipated themselves from instinct, and this process of emancipation means a fourth epoch. But they could not have wanted to emancipate themselves unless they had felt instinct as a servitude imposed by an external authority, and therefore we have to distinguish yet another epoch wherein reason is expressed in authoritarian institutions to which men blindly submit. In this way, Fichte deduces five historical epochs, two in which progress is blind, two in which it is free, and an intermediate in which it is struggling to consciousness. Footnote. First epoch, that of instinctive reason, the age of innocence. Second, that of authoritarian reason. Third, that of enfranchisement, the age of skepticism and unregulated liberty. Fourth, that of conscious reason as science. Fifth, that of regnant reason as art. End of footnote. But there are no locked gates between these periods. They overlap and mingle. Each may have some of the characteristics of another, and in each there is a vanguard leading the way and a rear guard lagging behind. At present, 1804, we are in the third age. We have broken with authority, but do not yet possess a clear and disciplined knowledge of reason. Footnote. Three years later, however, Fichte maintained in his patriotic Discourses to the German Nation, 1807, that in 1804 man had crossed the threshold of the fourth epoch. He asserted that the progress of culture and science will depend henceforward chiefly on Germany. End of footnote. Fichte has deduced this scheme purely a priori without any reference to actual experience. 
The philosopher, he says, quote, follows the a priori thread of the world plan which is clear to him without any history. And if he makes use of history, it is not to prove anything, since his theses are already proved independently of all history. Close quote. Historical development is thus presented as a necessary progress towards a goal which is known but cannot be reached. And this fact as to the destiny of the race constitutes the basis of morality, of which the fundamental law is to act in such a way as to promote the free realization of reason upon earth. It has been claimed by a recent critic that Fichte was the first modern philosopher to humanize morals. He completely rejected the individualistic conception which underlay Kantian as well as Christian ethics. He asserted that the true motive of morality is not the salvation of the individual man, but the progress of humanity. In fact, with Fichte, progress is the principle of ethics. That the Christian ideal of ascetic saintliness detached from society has no moral value is a plain corollary from the idea of earthly progress. One other point in Fichte's survey of history deserves notice. The social role of the savant. It is the function of the savant to discover the truths which are a condition of moral progress. He may be said to incarnate reason in the world. We shall see how this idea played a prominent part in the social schemes of Saint-Simon and Comte. 5. Hegel's philosophy of history is better known than Fichte's. Like Fichte, he deduced the phases a priori from his metaphysical principles, but he condescended to review in some detail the actual phenomena. He conceived the final cause of the world as spirit's consciousness of its own freedom. The ambiguous term freedom is virtually equivalent to self-consciousness, and Hegel defines universal history as the description of the process by which spirit or God comes to the consciousness of its own meaning. This freedom does not mean that spirit could choose at any moment to develop in a different way. Its actual development is necessary and is the embodiment of reason. Freedom consists in fully recognizing the fact. Of the particular features which distinguish Hegel's treatment, the first is that he identifies history with political history, the development of the state. Art, religion, philosophy, the creations of social man, belong to a different and higher stage of spirit's self-revelation. Footnote. The three phases of spirit are 1. Subjective, 2. Objective, 3. Absolute. Psychology, for example, is included in 1, law and history in 2, religion in 3. End of footnote. In the second place, Hegel ignores the primitive prehistoric ages of man and sets the beginning of his development in the fully grown civilization of China. He conceives the spirit as continually moving from one nation to another in order to realize the successive stages of its self-consciousness, from China to India, from India to the kingdoms of Western Asia, then from the Orient to Greece, then to Rome, and finally to the Germanic world. In the East, men knew only that one is free. The political characteristic was despotism. In Greece and Rome, they knew that some are free, and the political forms were aristocracy and democracy. In the modern world, they know that all are free, and the political form is monarchy. The first period he compared to childhood, the second to youth, Greece, and manhood, Rome, the third to old age, old but not feeble. The third, which includes the medieval and modern history of Europe, designated by Hegel as the Germanic world, for the German spirit is the spirit of the modern world, is also the final period. In it, God realizes his freedom completely in history, just as in Hegel's own absolute philosophy, which is final, God has completely understood his own nature. 
And here is the most striking difference between the theories of Fichte and Hegel. Both saw the goal of human development in the realization of freedom. But while with Fichte the development never ends as the goal is unattainable, with Hegel the development is already complete. The goal is not only attainable, but has now been attained. Thus Hegel's is what we may call a closed system. History has been progressive, but no path is left open for further advance. Hegel views this conclusion of development with perfect complacency. To most minds that are not intoxicated with the absolute, it will seem that, if the present is the final state to which the evolution of spirit has conducted, the result is singularly inadequate to the gigantic process. But his system is eminently inhuman. The happiness or misery of individuals is a matter of supreme indifference to the absolute, which, in order to realize itself in time, ruthlessly sacrifices sentient beings. The spirit of Hegel's philosophy, in its bearing on social life, was thus antagonistic to progress as a practical doctrine. Progress there had been, but progress had done its work. The Prussian monarchical state was the last word in history. Kant's cosmopolitical plan, the liberalism and individualism which were implicit in his thought, the democracies which he contemplated in the future, are all cast aside as a misconception. Once the needs of the absolute spirit have been satisfied, when it has seen its full power and splendor revealed in the Hegelian philosophy, the world is as good as it can be. Social amelioration does not matter, nor the moral improvement of men, nor the increase of their control over physical forces. 6. The other great representative of German idealism, who took his departure from Kant, also saw in history a progressive revelation of divine reason. But it was the processes of nature, not the career of humanity, that absorbed the best energies of Schelling, and the elaboration of a philosophical idea of organic evolution was the prominent feature of his speculation. His influence, and it was wide, reaching even scientific biologists, lay chiefly in diffusing this idea, and he thus contributed to the formation of a theory which was afterwards to place the idea of progress on a more imposing base. Schelling influenced, among others, his contemporary Krauss, a less familiar name who worked out a philosophy of history in which this idea is fundamental. Krauss conceived history, which is the expression of the absolute, as the development of life, society as an organism, and social growth as a process which can be deduced from abstract biological principles. All these transcendent speculations had this in common, that they pretended to discover the necessary course of human history on metaphysical principles independent of experience. But it has been rightly doubted whether this alleged independence was genuine. We may question whether any of them would have produced the same sequence of periods of history if the actual facts of history had been to them a sealed book. Indeed, we may be sure that they were surreptitiously and subconsciously using experience as a guide while they imagined that abstract principles were entirely responsible for their conclusions. And this is equivalent to saying that their ideas of progressive movement were really derived from that idea of progress which the French thinkers of the 18th century had attempted to base on experience. The influence, direct and indirect, of these German philosophers reached far beyond the narrow circle of the Bacchants or even the wand-bearers of idealism. They did much to establish the notion of progressive development as a category of thought, almost as familiar and indispensable as that of cause and effect. They helped to diffuse the idea of an increasing purpose in history. Augustine or Bossuet might indeed have spoken of an increasing purpose, but the purpose of their speculations was subsidiary to a future life. The purpose of the German idealists could be fulfilled in earthly conditions and required no theory of personal immortality. 
This atmosphere of thought affected even intelligent reactionaries who wrote in the interest of Orthodox Christianity and the Catholic Church. Progressive development is admitted in the lectures on the philosophy of history of Friedrich von Schlegel. He denounced Condorcet and opposed to perfectibility the corruptible nature of man. But he asserted that the philosophy of history is to be found in the principles of social progress. These principles are three. The hidden ways of providence emancipating the human race, the free will of man, and the power which God permits to the agents of evil, principles which Bossuet could endorse, but the novelty is that here they are arrayed as forces of progress. In fact, the point of von Schlegel's pretentious, unilluminating book is to rehabilitate Christianity by making it the key to that new conception of life which had taken shape among the enemies of the Church. 7. As biological development was one of the constant preoccupations of Goethe, whose doctrine of metamorphosis and types helped to prepare the way for the evolutionary hypothesis, we might have expected to find him interested in theories of social progress, in which theories of biological development find a logical extension. But the French speculations on progress did not touch his imagination. They left him cool and skeptical. Towards the end of his life, in conversation with Eckermann, he made some remarks which indicate his attitude. Quote, the world will not reach its goal so quickly as we think and wish. The retarding demons are always there, intervening and resisting at every point, so that, though there is an advance on the whole, it is very slow. Live longer, and you will find that I am right. The development of humanity, said Eckermann, appears to be a matter of thousands of years. Who knows, Goethe replied, perhaps of millions. But let humanity last as long as it will, there will always be hindrances in its way, and all kinds of distress to make it develop its powers. Men will become more clever and discerning, but not better, nor happier, nor more energetic, at least except for limited periods. I see the time coming when God will take no more pleasure in the race, and must again proceed to a rejuvenated creation. I am sure that this will happen, and that the time and hour in the distant future are already fixed for the beginning of this epoch of rejuvenation. But that time is certainly a long way off, and we can still for thousands and thousands of years enjoy ourselves on this dear old playing ground, just as it is. That is, at once, a plain rejection of perfectibility, and an opinion that intellectual development is no high road to the gates of a golden city. End of section 17